21, at the end of verse 21, and I do ask that you open up there yourselves and have a look uh, so that you can see it in your own Bible. We have been so far seeing and, uh, and reminding ourselves each week that, that Jude is just not a, a highly positive uh, kind of atmosphere. If you're looking for a pick-me-up, a real uh, a, a go-get-a-welcoming, make-everybody-feel-fun-and-fine kind of sermon series, you just don't go to the book of Jude. And that is because we are, we are in a highly therapeutic age, a highly soft and feminized church age even, where, where, where everybody needs to feel patted on the back and, and feels like the, uh, the apostles and, of course, the Lord Jesus would really have nothing to say to us other than, you're doing a great job, I wish I was more like you, hey, hang in there, everything's fine. But the reality is, and as we've been looking through the book of Jude, we've been recognizing that the negative side that he talks about is so necessary because we see that reflected in our own day. We see that reflected in Jude's day. It's not a, it's not a hyper-negative kind of a fault-finding way of thinking that, that preaches on these things. It is simply those who can deal with the reality of the world we're in. The reality of the world that we're in has true Christians in the church glorifying God and following him with all of their heart. And the real church, the real world, has in those churches false believers, false teachers also, those who, who would pervert the truth and twist the church away from its sure foundation of the gospel into error and into false practice of every kind. And so it has been our, our uh, blessing to be able to be going through the book of Jude and see him as he has largely so far told us from verse 5 onwards, uh, well, we'll include verse 4 in that, verse 4 through to verse uh, 16 is all about the reality that we must contend for the faith because there is a very real and present enemy in human form in the churches perverting the truth. That's what he said so far. And he has used, as he says in uh, verse 4, he says that these certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were written about for, uh, uh, for this condemnation, ungodly people. And then from verse 5 onwards, we see him pick up Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament stories, Jewish historical stories that we don't find in the Bible. Even tonight, he's going to go and quote again from First Enoch, another book that is nowhere in any of the scriptures, but includes some interesting historical Jewish details for us. He's been taking up these old examples and saying, people have always been, while God is pouring out his grace, Many people have always been in the business of twisting that grace and being judged. And Jesus has always been in the business of saving a people and judging those who prove false. We saw that there is no problem with us using this language of Jesus in the Old Testament. Jude himself said that Jesus led a people out of, the de uh, out of Egypt. Jesus led them through the wilderness. Jesus judged Sodom and Gomorrah by throwing burning sulfur down onto their cities. Jesus has always been the saviour, and yet hand in hand with that means that he has always also been the judge of those who apostatize, those who twist the truth, those who reject the grace of the Lord Jesus. So we're going to read from verse 14 onwards now, as he finishes up this, this barrage against the false teachers, uh, telling us what they are like and what will happen to them, and then he will move into what we ought to do in order to contend for the faith keeping ourselves in the most holy faith. And then next week we will see what we ought to do in order to preserve other people's faith, how we should contend for those that are backsliding, and, of course, the reality of how God sovereignly perseveres us. That'll be next week. So uh, take a look in your Bible of chapter 1 and verse 14 in the book of Jude. 
It was also about these people that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, building yourselves up in, your most holy, in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. May God bless this reading in our, in our midst this evening. Of course, we will be finishing at verse 22, which, uh, sorry, at, at verse 21, which talks about watching to, uh, uh, the, watching for the moment of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ at his return, and yet I just couldn't finish there without reading the last part of that paragraph. <coughs> So that uh, 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 what we've seen as we've been going through is his condemnation on the false teachers as he's been explaining why we should contend for the faith. He moves into this uh, at the, the, the last half, the second half of our passage tonight. He moves into how we contend. But we need to start here as we wrap up this idea that we've been looking at for the last three weeks on the fact that Jesus will execute judgment. This is, in fact, how we do contend for the faith. I don't want to make too clear a distinction as if Jude finishes writing about the ungodly, he stops writing about the false teachers, and he now transitions entirely to a different topic about how to keep ourselves away from the ungodly lives, about how to keep ourselves distinct from the false teachers. Because telling us, just the very act of telling us about the false teachers... And the very act of describing the judgment that comes on the false teachers is one of the ways that God preserves us. So that the first step in order to contend for the faith, as verse 3 told us, look again to verse 3. Verse 3 said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The rest of the passage has so far been showing us the fact that we must con contend because of the evil teachers. But now again, we will, uh, uh, the, even the remembrance of, the consideration of the judgment that comes onto the false teachers is one of the ways that we do that. It is one of the ways that we contend for the faith. So Jude, as you look at verse 14 to 19, where, uh, where he tells us, uh, he quotes and refers to two prophets or two messengers to whom we must give our ear in order to remember what happens to the ungodly. First of all, he quotes Enoch from verse 14 till about 15. And then in verse uh, uh, 17 and 18, he reminds us to remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus said. So there's our two groups of people. One is Enoch who prophesied before the flood came down in Genesis 6. That was him all the way back then. And then most recently for Jude, some of whom are still living, 
He is quoting and referring to the teaching of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. This has been the, this has been the continual witness of God's prophets. This has been the continual witness of all of Scripture throughout history. Men are sinners. They are offered grace through God's mercy to be saved. And yet those who reject it or pervert it or twist that truth are met with judgment. Enoch taught that as the, one of the first prophets that we ever hear about. And the apostles of the Lord Jesus, the last generation of prophets sent from heaven, speak to the very same thing. This has been the universal message of God's messengers. The apostles tell us that, the, that the, the ungodly false teachers will be in the church in what we call the last time. So look at verse 18. I think that the particular apostle that he's quoting is, is Peter, because in 2 Peter chapter 3, we have almost a direct quote from what he is about to reference. In fact, the whole of the book of 2 Peter reads like a, 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 a summary or an elongation of Jude's epistle. They're very similar. You can study them together. He quotes Peter, and obviously this is the, the, the universal witness of all of the other apostles, in verse 18. When they said, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. The last times that he's talking about is not just a period most, uh, uh, most squished down to the end of human history just before Jesus comes back. The last few weeks or years or decades before the end of human history, that is not just what we mean by the last times. If you've been here and you've heard us teach on this before, you will recognize that the last times is really a reference to the last era, the last chapter in the book of redemptive history. We had all sorts of different ages, different days. We had the day of the Lord as Jesus came and judged and brought salvation. And the next stage, the next era that we have is the last times. From Jesus' resurrection until his coming again in judgment, we have what we call the last days, the last group of days. It could last 2,200, uh, 2022 years, and it could be the, the final year on this earth, or it could be another 10,000 we just don't know. I want to live like Jesus is coming back at the end of next week. That's, that's the urgency I want. But not a prophecy, don't quote me. They've always been saying, and this is the encouragement, Jude is saying the apostles always told us these people would be here in the last days. These people who are scoffers at the word of God. They make fun of the, 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 the commandments of the Lord Jesus. They, they pervert his grace and turn it into an excuse to do what you wish, as he said back in verse 4. They are scoffers, verse 18 says. They're following their own ungodly passions. They, they follow their heart. They do what their body desires. And this, again, is just a summary of what we've seen in prior weeks about these people, sexually immoral and the rest. So there's one section that he is telling us. The apostles told us they'll be around. Don't be confused. Don't be shocked when you find out that there are people in your own movement, your own denomination, your own church, your own family or friendship group that apostatize, that twist the truth, that are found unfaithful. These people are scattered and littered throughout the church age. It is the job of the church to remain a pure body, to put out those false teachers, to uphold a high standard of doctrine so that those false teachers are notified, are noticed, are identified and removed. It is not something that should surprise us. The apostles told us this wasn't just an old-time thing. This wasn't just something that happened in Noah's day, in Enoch's day, in, in, in the days of the past, in the days of the Old Testament. No, this is something still occurring now. But the other, the other person that he quotes is in verse 14 through 15, and this is uh, uh, Enoch. Now, 
you'll read that and you'll say, you know, verse 14, it tells us the seventh from Adam was Enoch. He was the man that Hebrews 11 tells us was close with God. He was a friend of God. He went walking one day with God and just didn't come back because he was no more. He, he didn't have to die. He just elevated up to heaven. That's a pretty cool way to go. He was a man that was close with the Lord before they had scriptures. Before the flood had even come, in a very unrighteous generation and world, Enoch lived and loved God. He was taken up, <coughs> and yet we are told that uh, uh, by Jude here that he was somebody who prophesied on the part of God. Now, we do not have the, the writings of Enoch and his prophetic oracles written down anywhere. The best that we have is, that, is the fact that some of the things that he said was passed down through Jewish oral tradition, meaning from Enoch, it would have been held and taught by Noah. God did not see fit to write it down in the scriptures. Therefore, it is not universally applicable. I don't care if you find a guy on YouTube who wants to argue that you should read and listen to and preach on the book of Enoch. We're not going to do it. Please don't send me an email. Non-canonical, not trustworthy, not inspired. Just because Jude picks up this quotation from it does not mean that the book of Enoch was written by God or, or, or was perfectly inspired as we, we speak of Scripture being, the inspiration, outbreathed Word of God. However, there was some kind of tradition where, where they kept the message of, of Enoch alive and the tradition was known so that in, 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 in uh, Jude's day there was a book called First Enoch. Now everybody knew that Enoch didn't write the book because he was dead for a few thousand years and no book survived the flood. So no one was saying that Enoch wrote this book. They knew that it was a bit of, a bit of historical fiction that was written as if it had been preached by Enoch. But let's get our minds into gear here. In that fictitious book was included some of the traditions that the Jews believed Enoch to have spoken. And then Jude picks this small portion up and says, this Enoch did really say, and since Jude is inspired by the Holy Spirit, we know that it's true. They wrote down in a fictitious story about Enoch something that tradition told them Enoch did say, and then the Holy Spirit inspired Jude to confirm to us, yes, Enoch did say this. In fact, he prophesied. He spoke a word from God to his generation. And now we've got that little bit confusing bit about this quotation from a strange book out of the way. What is it that Enoch prophesied, which Jude picks up and says is true? It is this. Uh, quoted from First Enoch, he says this, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. Very familiar language for all those who know the New Testament, that Jesus will return one day with all of his holy angels to enact judgment. The Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, who can, uh, on all and to convict all the ungodly. Now, now just... Just count how many times he uses the word all or ungodly. This is a very universal and negative statement. To convict all the ungodly of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So did you know that there is not just such a thing as sinners, but that sinners are ungodly sinners who do ungodly acts in ungodly ways? This is, a, this is a trifecta of ungodliness, so that what Enoch was saying, man, this is, this is remarkable. At some point, before even the judgment came, in the flood, God had spoken through a man to proclaim to his generation, there is a day coming when the creator of this world will return with holy angels and blaze out with fiery judgment all of his executions. What an amazing thought. 
This was told to Enoch, and Enoch was saying that, uh, uh, that judgment will come upon the evildoers. Now Jude picks this up and says, that is true of evildoers and false teachers in every generation. Don't just think that judgment will come at the end when Jesus returns. Jesus has currently judged them. Jesus has currently put them aside for judgment so that each of them die and, yes, go to an intermediary hell until Jesus comes back. But at the, res at the resurrection of everybody, at Jesus' return from heaven, he will resurrect those people who are, who are uh, perverters of the truth, the false teachers in the church. They will rise up out of their graves. I don't care if they died in peace or they died in their $60 million jet. They will be pulled up out of that grave, given an internal body in which Jesus judges them and condemns them to the lake of fire. That's what Jesus will do. So that people right now in Jude's day, he's saying, in our day, they will see Jesus coming in a blazing glory. Every false teacher of every generation will be raised in that moment unto judgment. Mark chapter 25 verse 31 is a very similar theme or a, 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 one of the prophecies of the Lord Jesus speaking of the final judgment in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 25 verse 31. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Jesus will in that day, this is the universal testimony of the New Testament. There is one day coming that Acts 17 has told us about. When Paul was preaching, God has set a day. It doesn't move further back if we behave better. It doesn't come closer to us if we behave better. It doesn't move closer to us if our generation is particularly wicked. It does not move away to give us more time. There is a day set by the sovereign Lord of all of history when Jesus will return and judge. But that day is a blessed day for the believers. That day is a day of hope, which we will look at further down in verse 21. <clears throat> so, in this whole theme that Jude is so far telling us, as he is telling us how to contend for the faith, how to remain firm and steadfast in the faith, we need to remember that Jesus will certainly come and execute judgment. And this is helpful in three ways. Number one, because remembering is a warning for ourselves. Remembering is a warning for ourselves. Now, we, we mentioned this earlier when, when Jude said, I would remind you, brothers, in verse 5, that to Jude and for much of the New Testament, remembering is not just an intellectual act. He doesn't just mean, hey, bring this back into your memory. He means bring this fact back into your focus. This is why every day we need to remember the gospel, not because I think many of us have had a good head injury, which means that we forget the content of the gospel message every time we go to sleep, but because each day we are likely to, to lose focus on the gospel. Each day we are likely to refocus on the things of the earth or refocus in on ourselves. We need to every day remember the gospel by bringing it back into clarified focus. In the same way, when the apostles remind us of things that we already know, they don't expect you to just switch off if you've already heard this part of the sermon. They're telling you, bring this back into your focus. Remember that Jesus will most certainly and decisively come back and judge, and the effect that that has on the true believers is not that we run away in fear, afraid that we're going to be burned up in that day, but rather that that, that 
condemnation of the judgment draws us to God such that we would be those pushing away from those who would be judged. As, as Paul commands, he says, flee from the sins of the flesh because the wrath of God is coming to them. Get off the train track. The train is coming here. Remove yourself into, into the rightful way of living. Go and pursue godliness. Get away from this lifestyle. Walk away from these people. Be warned, they are going to be judged. That's, that's one of the effects that the reminder of judgment has on us. The second is to testify. The fact that we testify to these things. When we remember this, and we hold fast to the doctrine of things like an eternal conscience, to, conscious torment in hell, when we hold fast to the doctrine of hell and Christ's decisive executing judgment on that final day, when we hold fast to that, and we testify to it outwardly, we are warning others. We are warning other people who need to be saved, and also we are scaring off the false teachers. I mean, I'll tell you, the doctrine of judgment and the doctrine of hell is just one of those touchstone topics today that if you hold fast to that, it really tests whether or not you take your belief from Scripture or whether you lean somewhat on what the culture wants you to believe. When I meet people and, they, and they, have, they have many other things very good and they're willing to affirm many other doctrines, but I push these pastors on whether or not they believe, they love, they preach the reality of Christ's judgment. Where they're shaky on that, I trust that every other doctrine is just a shaky outward shell because it's not drawn with the conviction that Scripture tells us this. We dare not change it. So remembering the judgment of Christ on false teachers and unbelievers warns us against following them. As we testify it, it warns others away from judgment and it wards off false teachers. And also, remembering Christ's judgment on false teachers is a comfort to us. It's a comfort to us because we often will be taken by surprise. We mentioned this earlier. We will often be living our Christian life and our pastor falls away from the faith. Our favorite preacher is in a scandal. Our favorite apologist is turned out to be an abuser. Our favorite friend, our, our old churchmate that we grew up with, somebody in our family, they fall away. They reject the faith. They deny the core tenets. They make excuses for their own sin. And we are, we are confused. And we assume if this can happen to them, then nobody's safe. If this can happen to, to them, then I'm surely unsaved. The, the whole faith is just a scandal. It's all untrue. I believed it so much and now I'm shaking. And yet when we we read the New Testament and we remember that even one of Christ's own followers fell away, then we are encouraged, not because we take joy in their fall, but because we read the scripture and know this ought to be expected. This is how the devil works, sowing false believers in, in order to try and take your belief down with it, in order to discourage you, make you, make you uncomfortable, make you unassured in the grace of God, make you, make you unbelieving that you could yourself be truly loved by the Father, and yet Verse, two told, uh, verse 1 sorry, told us that we are those called, beloved by the Father, and kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. Be comforted that the Scripture addresses such a horrendous and ugly reality in the church. So, the summary of Jude so far, as far as the false believers and the false teachers has gone, has been that they are apostates, they reject authority, 
They're fornicators. They excuse homosexuality. They rely on their dreams. They reject portions of God's word. They disrespect angelic beings. They get paid for allowing sexual immorality. They destroy the church secretly. They are false shepherds. They promise abundant life but spiritually kill people. They distract people while abusing them. They grumble against God. They follow their heart's desires. They boast about their own glory and they show favoritism in order to gain advantage. And these people, Jesus has already judged and he will in the future kill, judge and destroy in the gloomy darkness of eternal fire when he comes back in his glorious judgment. That's how Jude views false teachers. You just know that somebody pulled him up later and spoke to him about his tone. But that is the reality. And so verse 16 so ends as really a a summary of what he's already said. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desire. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So friends, be warned, hold fast to it, and be comforted that the scripture addresses such a reality. But secondly, we see that he tells us to pursue our spiritual health. The first step to contending for the faith is remembering that Jesus who is glorified, Jesus who is triumphant, Jesus who is coming back to judge is our Lord. That is the one that they killed, and yet he is glorious and in judgment. We trust in him. We are saved by him, and we remember he will come back to judge. We will not be afraid of their threats. And yet there is also a a positive thing that we ought to be doing, which is pursuing our own and our communal spiritual health. We see this in uh, chapter, uh, sorry, verse uh, 20 to 21. He says, but you, beloved, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We can separate this up into four somewhat distinct, somewhat overlapping exhortations. First of all, to build yourself up in the most holy faith. Secondly, to pray in the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, to keep yourself in the love of God. And fourthly, to wait for the mercy of our Lord, which leads to eternal life. So first of all, there in verse 20, we are told, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. It's incumbent on us to realize that in the New Testament, when the language of building or edifying, which is literally the language of building an edifice, when that language is used, it's always referring to the communal body of the church. You are being commanded here to work on your own salvation and building up yourself in your knowledge of and and, and devotion to the most holy faith. And yet that has to be in the context of a broader body of believers called the church. Whatever book you go to in the New Testament, you cannot get away from the fact that involvement in a vital and meaningful, intentional involvement in a local church is the bare minimum for Christian maturity. There is no such thing as even the slightest bit of maturity in a Christian who isolates themselves like a brick out of the temple of God, thrown out into the wilderness, not to engage and interact with other Christians in a meaningful, covenantal, community, family way. So this language is picked up again by Jude, the building language. The the language of Ephesians, the language of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the language of 1st Peter, the language of Revelation, the language of Jesus, that we we are a plant, 
we are, a, we are a building, an organic growing building of living stones. So if we are to build up ourselves individually, which we must, it must be in the context of the building up of the local church, the temple of God. This is the first clue that he is speaking of a communal sort of idea here. The church, not just individuals, he uses that language of building. But also he talks about the most holy faith. He's not saying your own individual faiths. He's not just talking about your faith to God, but as verse 3 has said, when verse 3 said that we should contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, the word faith there is actually being used in the sense of the body of doctrine, right? We belong to the Christian faith, the Christian religion, if you will. This body of, of truth that we believe, that's our faith. And so this, again, brings us to that communal language. Build yourselves up, in the most holy faith. This is a unified faith. This is something that we have to be involved in together. And so what particularly does it look like for us to be not isolated, not demolishing the temple, but building up the temple of God, the church, not separated from others, but, but in uh, intentional involvement with others in a church? What does it look like to be building ourselves up in that belief? Look, looks like, most certainly, knowledge and proficiency of biblical truth, an understanding of and a growing in understanding of biblical doctrine, of theology. We'll even throw in church history as something that is uh, very helpful for us to be learning, the development of doctrine throughout history. There's, there's just no reason, even though, yes, we know that bare knowledge itself merely puffs up. It's one of the most ugly things to witness, uh, somebody who is devoid of the Spirit, not filled with the love of Christ, and who knows just about everything there is to know, apparently. Yes, it's ugly. And yet, let, let us make no excuses for intentional satisfaction with mediocrity when it comes to Scripture. No one in here knows enough. Everyone in here needs to continue to increase in their knowledge of doctrine drawn from the wells of Scripture. Ignorance of the Bible, it has been said, makes no heroes of the faith. It's not... It, we rest on Christ's grace. We know that later uh, in next week's verses, he will say, have mercy on those who doubt, those who are struggling. We recognize that we're all at different levels and not all of us are, are yet done-ho theologians able to uh, take apart uh, any argument against the faith. We know that. And yet, it's never an excuse to stay where you are. Always pursue a, a greater, a grander, a broader, a deeper, a wider, a higher knowledge of what the Bible speaks to us. Always be doing that. That is the command of what he means by building yourself up in the most holy faith, in the most holy doctrinal standards handed to us by Jesus' apostles. Secondly, he tells us, pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, again, these are overlapped because he says, building yourselves up, praying in the Holy Spirit, as if this is, this is both, a way, uh, both uh, uh, interdependent ways of doing this. Praying in the Holy Spirit is referred to, uh, 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 I think, most, pal most clearly the same theme in, in Romans chapter 8. You can go there if you wish. We're going to look at verse 14. But in Romans 8, Paul also refers to this relationship between the Holy Spirit and our prayers. Don't jump to the conclusion here with no biblical warrant whatsoever that when he says praying in the Spirit, he means speaking in other languages. Anything miraculous or anointed in that sense. Rather, what he is doing is bringing them back to those ordinary, most regular means of grace. That as you build yourself up in your knowledge, pray in communion with the Holy Spirit. Romans 8. 
Romans 8 verses 14 through 15 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you see the, 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 con- the, the contrast between fear for slaves and the confidence that sons have to approach God in prayer? The spirit given to us is the spirit of adoption that teaches us to pray to our Father. Verse 26 also says, Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is the reality of praying in the spirit. It means relying on the Holy Spirit to help us means asking the Holy Spirit to to lead us into praying certain things. It means also, of course, having our word open and praying the words of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit, because we see those two things held together in Ephesians 6, which is where I'll go now. In Ephesians 6, Paul says in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. As Jude's sense, do not go contending for the faith without any armor. Do not go contending for the faith with your shoes untied. Do not try to run down an enemy while you are still half-dressed, but be strengthened in the Lord and the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on then the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Down in verse 17, he tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, comma, praying at all times in the Spirit with all supplication, and to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all of the saints. Do you see that these two things go together? When we say pray in the Spirit, we mean pray in the Spirit of the Word of God relying on the Spirit of God, trusting that He has given to us to enable us to pray. I mean, how much of a difference would this make for us individually, in our fellowship groups, in our family, as a church, if we believed that the two weapons given to us in our warfare against the evil one and all of his minions was the Word of God and prayer, intermingled. The Word of God delivered through, the, through a preparation of prayer. Prayer that is made up using the words of God. I wonder how this might change how how you think about your own prayer life. That it is not simply trying to uh, tick a box for the day. It's not simply a way to transition from the the sermon to the songs. It's not simply a way to to wrap up the fellowship group. It's not simply a way for you to close out with a few nice words that you've memorized at the end of your Bible reading. But these two things, the the praying is the holding fast of the word of God, the sword of the spirit. The the, the prayer is is a weapon given to us as we pray in the spirit. Maybe that means that you need, to, you need to go home and really check how much you're praying in your actual scheduled day-by-day life. Maybe you need to think about how much you are actually willing to open your mouth and pray in fellowship group, small group settings. Don't just leave it to the guys who always pray. Don't just leave it to the people who are way better public speakers. You're a member of the body. You are commanded to, to bring your supplications at all times and in every way to the Lord God who is helping you. And maybe it means that, that you need to be more intentional about attending something like, uh, like praying for those who are in need, like going to a church prayer meeting because you believe that God has commanded prayer and when done in his spirit, it brings glorious results. This is how we contend for the faith. We build ourselves up and we pray in the Holy Spirit. 
Thirdly, he tells us, keep yourselves in the love of God. And I'm just going to spend no time explaining it and just give it out, and then we'll look at a couple of verses. When he says, keep yourself in the love of God, he means obey his commandments. Super unpopular today, super unpopular way to think about that. People think when, when you're told to keep yourself in the love of God, it probably means don't read his, his commandments, don't so much worry about what he says, just, just vibe it up, you know, just get an atmosphere, turn on some music, get a little incense burner going, get yourself in a vibe, in an atmosphere of the love of God. But that's not how the New Testament speaks of it. Now, of course, the New Testament, the scripture entirely makes clear that you don't get yourself into the love of God by your works. All over, the witness of, of, of God in Scripture is this, that while you were sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were weak and in need, God loved us, his enemies, and gave to us the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place, the penalty for our sin, who rose again to free us from sin and secure for us eternal life, that, that John will say, we have not loved God first, but he loved us first. It is because we believe in the initiating sovereign love of God that we know that that is not what Jude is talking about. Because you can't keep yourself in or out of the love of God if you tried. God has, in that sense, God has eternally chosen and loved those people and will save them. You can't get yourself out of the love of God. So what kind of love is Jude referring to? I think he refers to the same kind of love that John refers to in 1 John chapter 5. This is the kind of love that he means, not, not keep God loving you, but keep yourself in the path of God's law. Keep yourself under the path that God will bless. Keep yourself where God pours out his loving gifts. 1 John chapter 5 defines it like this. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. It's very simple. The path that God loves, the path that God will bless, the way that we keep ourselves in love with God and under the love of God is that we follow his commandments. You are saved and will only ever be saved and eternally justified by faith alone. It's just not what Jude is talking about here. He's saying those who have been justified, those who have been adopted and are in Jesus Christ, irrevocably secured by the Holy Spirit, do not run away from that love. Do not make excuses for, the, for, the, for friendship with the world, which is enmity to God. Do not try and, try and contend for the faith. Expect yourself to persevere in strength while there is hidden and unrepentant sin. Do not be lazy about your own holiness and expect God to just pour out all the same blessings of usefulness and contending for the faith and giving you souls that are saved and, and leading you on to glorious triumph in the procession of Christ. Don't expect that if you're making excuses for sin. But keep yourself in that love of God. And fourthly, he says, wait for the mercy of our Lord, which leads to eternal life. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And how striking it is that the moment he's talking about and the mercy he's talking about is the same day that he's just warned the false teachers about. The day that Jesus appears is a day of mighty fury and judgment for the unbelievers, for those who have twisted the word of God and, and apostatized away from the love of God. And yet for the Christians, 
those who believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, those who pursue him in his word, those who seek to honor them in his life, for us, we are waiting eagerly for that day. For that day is the moment of his mercy. We've received mercy when he died for us before we were even born. We received mercy when he poured his spirit into our heart to make us a new creation and receive Jesus Christ. We received mercy when he forgave us and has grown us every step of the way. We have been receiving mercy at every point, but there is a day of ultimate mercy. There is a day of final mercy when finally Jesus will will relieve us from the curse of this world. He will relieve us from the attack of the false teachers, of of the barragement of our own sin in our own flesh. He will free the church from all of her enemies and all of her stains and present us to himself without a single blemish. That day is the mercy when, in Jude's language, our eternal life begins. Of course our eternal life has begun. Of course, we were granted eternal life that can never die at the moment we believed. And yet, our our infinite life, the fullness of that life will start when Jesus comes back and even our flesh is remade. Every cell and every atom in the entire universe will be perfectly aligned to the will of God. What a day that we are waiting for. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, Paul speaks of this day. Speaking of the same idea of Jude, of contending for the faith, Paul says, and I pray that this would be able to be on our lips for each one of us when we are on our deathbed. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. If you hate the appearing of the Lord Jesus, if you're afraid of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would extend it as far out as possible, and unlike John, you would not say, come Lord Jesus, there's need to question our own salvation. It is the the day that we are longing for, for every Christian. This is not our home. While we do much good work on this earth and we build the kingdom of Christ, we do not allow ourselves to be comfortable here. We desire the full and uh, ultimately manifested kingdom of the Lord Jesus. 1 John chapter 3 also says this. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, that is what we're going to become in the eternal state, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Jesus is coming back, and that has an effect on us, that as we wait, we pursue purity and likeness to Christ. Or as Romans 8 again tells us in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope, of course, that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The the idea of waiting in the New Testament is not a passive one. We don't wait sitting on our hands, hoping he comes back tonight so we don't have to do good work, hoping that he comes back as soon as possible so that we don't have to build the kingdom and see souls saved. No, of course not. The reason that we want him to come back, the reason that we love his appearing and eagerly wait for his appearance is because we love him. 
No matter how much we love serving him, no matter how much we love building his kingdom, the thing we love most is him. We cannot wait for him to come back and pour on us all of that mercy. But of course, as Judas said, until that moment, we contend. We defend the faith. We proclaim the faith. We build ourselves up in this holy faith, knowing that Jesus, who is faithful to judge when he comes back, will be faithful to save all those who have trusted in him. And that's my question for you tonight as we wrap up. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just as a historical figure, not just as a great mentor or spiritual coach or example or religious figure, but have you come to a personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through the word of God? Has it, has it exploded into your heart so that you've realized and recognized the glory of Jesus, the grace of Jesus to forgive your own unworthy soul? Have you been inwardly changed by the power of what the Word of God says about Jesus? Have you seen your life changed, turning away from the passions of the flesh? Have you seen your life changed from turning away from the desires of your heart to, to follow after the law of God, to find yourself in the body of Christians and delighting in it? If that is not happened to you, then you are still dead in your sins. You are still under the judgment of Christ, which he will pour out when he comes. But the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has appeared. It is on offer to you tonight that you would receive it by faith alone. Receive and believe all that Jesus has done in dying for you, in rising for you, and now calling you to himself. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's anything we want to thank you for, if there's anything we want to glorify you for, it is for your plan and purpose that you have achieved through sending the Lord Jesus Christ, through crushing him in our place, through exalting him to the right hand of yourself to rule and reign until every enemy is put down before his feet. We thank you, Lord God, that by faith we have, we have been and can be saved and brought into his mercy. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you. And yet, Lord, we also... We're also just struck with how ordinary these things are that Jude tells us to do. As we are contending against the, the principalities and the powers and the false teachers and those who are, who are, who are empowered and inspired by the, the devil and his legions and, and we wonder what must be done and we see that Jude's command to contend for the faith and to pursue spiritual health is simply know the word, pray and keep ourselves in the love of God that is following his commandments. We thank you, Lord God, for the simplicity of this because it is not out of reach for any single one of us. It is perfectly within reach of those who have the Holy Spirit. I pray, therefore, Lord God, that we would not make excuses, we would not draw back or shrink back or, or fall away, but we would press ourselves in, knowing that you are gracious and merciful. You are always inviting us and always commanding us to, make, uh, to, to come closer to you in intimate faith, and that you would lead us on to victorious Christian living that, 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 that triumphs over our constant sins that is powerful against our temptations, and Lord God, that is productive in building your kingdom. We pray, God, for any who are un un unsaved here tonight, that aren't Christians yet, that you extend to them your mercy and save their souls tonight, for Jesus is worthy of them. And it is in his name that we all say, amen.